If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, everybody? This is Stephen A. Smith, host of the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at the very least as I bring you all new episodes that feature the biggest headlines in the world of sports, pop culture, business, and I answer your phone calls and respond to your tweets. You'll hear my unfiltered opinions and straight-shooter interviews with top celebrities and game changers. All that and more. So listen to the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. I'm Hannah Storm, and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball, from growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. A listener note, this story contains adult language and some graphic descriptions of violence. Previously on Caruth. She dies, and we go back to try to lock him up, and of course he's gone. My reaction to Ray fleeing was just another big display of his cowardice. I received a call from the FBI office telling me that he was in a motel in Wildersville, Tennessee. The reality hit all of us that this is not looking good for Ray. And, you know, were there any signs that that any of this stuff was going through his mind? I'll never forget seeing that camera and saying, he's back in, he's hiding the license plate. We snuck him out the back door because we didn't tell the media and they didn't tell him until he was already home. And they said he's been released today. In late August, attorney David Rudolph strolled into a conference room in his modest two-story office building, just a five-minute drive from Charlotte's Mecklenburg County Courthouse. So my name is David Rudolph, it's R-U-D-O-L-F, and I have been practicing since uh, 1974, but in uh, North Carolina since 1978. For months, I'd worked to set up this interview with the man who defended Ray Carruth at his murder trial. I'd arrived 15 minutes early and had taken a look around the office. In that conference room, Rudolph has an enormous courtroom sketch of the Carruth trial hanging on the wall, commemorating Charlotte's trial of the century. Because it's a very cool picture. (laughs) (laughs) It is. (laughs) And it's Jerry McJunkins, and he is the best courtroom artist in the world, I think. The picture shows the attorney in a brown suit commanding the packed courtroom, and gesturing at his client. Back then, Jeff Siner, one of our producers for this podcast, was the only still photographer allowed in the courtroom. He's there in the image. The man next to Jeff is working the only video camera there for court TV. And Jerry came in here, and he showed me the middle panel. This is a triptych, actually. And I said, oh, I like that. He said, you want to buy it? I said, yeah, how much is it? He said, well, Before you do that, let me show you the other two. (laughs) So uh, having spent a fair amount of money, we're better to hang it. It seems fitting that Rudolph celebrates the trial as it forms a straight line to the case that in 2018 brought him even more prominence his criminal defense of North Carolina author Michael Peterson. I understand you want to pump the ratings, but give me a break. That case, surrounding the death of Peterson's wife, was chronicled in a documentary available on Netflix called The Staircase. Dwayne Deaver had a pattern of preparing misleading expert reports. Uh, The filmmakers had just finished and won an Academy Award for Murder on a Sunday Morning, which was another documentary they did. They were looking for another case in the United States, they're from France, to follow. 
So they called some contacts at Court TV. Well, Court TV had just finished covering Ray's case. So the person they spoke with said, well, you know, call David. He may know of some cases that are going on. So they called me and they said, you know, we're looking at explaining, looking for a case. And uh, then we were off to the races. I wanted to speak with Rudolph because he created Carruth's much debated legal strategy in this case, but for another reason, too. Throughout his career, the defense attorney often became as large a lightning rod in his cases as the people he defended. That was a key subplot in Carruth's trial. I've been to trial a number of times, so I've had attorneys that have been aggressive. That's Mark Post, the FBI agent who arrested Carruth in Tennessee. The defense attorney, I thought, well, he's a good attorney, but boy, what a jerk. Rudolph cross-examined him in the early stages of the three-month trial, and the lawyer was just getting started. So you're sort of a hitman without a weapon. If that's what you want to say. Well, that's what you were, according to you. If that's what you, I could kill you with my hands. But as Rudolph told me, there was far more to this trial than a couple of sound bites. If everything fell apart, Rudolph would still walk out of that courtroom. Ruth would walk straight on to death row. From the Charlotte Observer in McClatchy Studios, this is Carruth. I'm Scott Fowler, and this is Chapter 5, On Trial. By the middle of 2000, Carruth had been in jail for more than six months. Sharika had been shot the prior November. Carruth's son, Chancellor Lee, had been delivered by emergency C-section. Once Sharika died four weeks later, Carruth had fled the state, been arrested by the FBI in Tennessee, and was charged with first-degree murder. All four defendants in Sharika's killing now awaited trial. Van Brett Watkins, the admitted trigger man, Michael Kennedy, who had confessed to buying the gun and driving the car used in the drive-by shooting, Stanley Abraham, a friend of Kennedy's who most everyone agreed had no prior knowledge of what was going to happen the night Sharika was shot, and Carruth, the supposed mastermind of the conspiracy, an allegation that still confused his friends and family. And my former roommate, who had kind of dated him, is the one that called me and told me because she had seen it on the news. Monique Young has been Carruth's friend for decades. I mean, I've never seen a violent side of him. I've never seen him really angry like that. You know what I mean? Like, he's that fun guy that's always laughing and joking. I mean, I can still, in my mind, picture where I was at, who I was with, and getting that phone call and just being shocked. What the hell is going on? Carruth had hired a well-known Charlotte lawyer in George Lauren. But once the former Carolina Panther became the first well-known active NFL player about to be tried for first-degree murder... The Audrey Carruth wanted a bigger name legal team, including the highest profile defense lawyer in the country at the time. I think that his mom had called Johnny Cochran because it was sort of on the heels of the OJ case. Um, and so Johnny Cochran was sort of the, the go to person, at least for ex football players. Here's David Rudolph again. Johnny was uh, in practice with Barry Sheck, who is a good friend of mine. Uh, and so through that, Theodry was referred to me, and then I went and met with Ray, and uh, things sort of progressed from there. Rudolph's primary opponent in the courtroom was lead prosecutor Gentry Caudill, who had already sent eight men to death row. Several of them were given the choice to be killed by lethal gas or lethal injection, if you consider that much of a choice. But by 1998, lethal injection had become North Carolina's only method of execution. All the elements of first-degree murder were present in this case. Cadill had attended Sharika's funeral in December, and even today remembers the circumstances of her shooting all too well. Clearly, firing five bullets point-blank range into Sharika Adams' body in an ambush killing, all the elements of premeditation are there. In North Carolina, premeditated killings generally qualify as first-degree. Second-degree murders don't require advanced planning. The second crucial difference between those charges, only first-degree murders can be punished by death. As to the death penalty, the jury cannot even consider the death penalty unless aggravating circumstances are present. In this case, the aggravating circumstances were, it was for, it's called pecuniary gain, for money. 
second aggravating factor was especially atrocious, cruel, heinous is the term of law. An ambush slaying of an innocent, trusting, pregnant young woman on a dark street, leaving her on the side of the road to die, leaving her unborn child with a life of disadvantages and challenges. Beyond first-degree murder, the state would charge Carruth with conspiracy to commit murder, using an instrument with intent to destroy an unborn child and discharging a firearm into occupied property. The jury was instructed to rule, guilty or not guilty, on each of these four charges independently. We had four co-defendants charged with capital murder and the other accompanying charges. Caudill's team was determined to see justice done, but prosecuting Carruth required some careful calculation. There were key pieces of evidence they didn't have. Shreka Adams' 911 tape, although powerful, chilling even, what it said was that Ray Carruth was ahead of her, that he slowed, she slowed, and the car pulled beside her and started shooting. And she said, Ray just left. So that tape, although very important, just put him at her near the scene. And, of course, she had no way of knowing that he had instigated this. To convict him of first-degree murder, Caudill needed to show Carruth had plotted to kill Sharika. The police had checked his uh, phone records and found before and after the shooting of Sharika that he had made phone calls to Michael Kennedy and Van Brett Watkins. Eventually, Watkins gave it a confession that Ray Carruth had hired him to kill Sharika. Uh, Michael Kennedy admitted that he had driven the car. Stanley Abrams admitted that he was in the car. We had some concerns about the admissibility of the statements of Sharika Adams. Uh, we made plea offers to second-degree murder and the accompanying charges to all four defendants. Kennedy and Abraham balked. They thought second-degree murder overstated their involvement in the crime. Carruth also refused the plea, which meant he would have his day in court to face the men who could seal his fate. Caudill wanted to try all four men at once, but the motion to join the cases was denied by Judge Charles Lamb. It was a a matter of prosecutorial efficiency to try to have one trial instead of four. Secondly, it would be almost enjoyable to have the four defendants over there pointing fingers at one another uh, during the course of the trial and have them fighting among themselves. And we made the decision to try Carruth first, And as we moved towards trial, we felt in order to be assured of getting conviction, we needed the testimony of a co-defendant. The only defendant left to take a plea was Watkins, a repeat felon who told me in our jailhouse interview that he felt God was watching over him when the death penalty was taken off the table. That's why I took the plea. Uh, I said, God is the one who kept Sharik alive. And then God instructed Watkins could be the prosecution's star witness, but he could just as easily explode on the stand, and Caudill knew it. We reluctantly made a plea arrangement with Watkins because at that point we really needed that testimony. Throughout 2000, the looming trial took shape like a violent Atlantic storm, and one of the first casualties was Carruth's bank account. According to court documents, the former football player had a net worth of $368,000 the night before Sharika's shooting. Less than a year later, Rudolph told Judge Lamb the first-round NFL draft pick had less than $5,000 in his bank account, and he couldn't pay his lawyers anymore. Carruth was declared indigent. Rudolph was appointed one of his state-paid defense attorneys. So, we've got Carruth that can fly. In his jail cell, the one-time college English major took solace in the written word. Stuart, with time, let it go. Theodre shared a poem her son wrote at the time with the Charlotte Observer. It began, Think about how many times you've been to the zoo. Ever wonder how it would feel if one of the animals were you? Caught for a touchdown! Incredible! He continued, Ever ask yourself if they could remember how it feels to be free? Or if all their memories had faded? living life in captivity. at the 40, has the first down for Carolina. The poem ends. I bet you've never sensed the animal's pain, humility, or rage. 
because it's impossible to conceive unless you've lived on both sides of the cage. Caught into the end zone. Touchdown, Ray Carruth and Carolina. As the storm around Carruth strengthened, even outsiders were drawn into its path. I lived uh, in Charlotte, uh, and uh, at that time I was employed with Crisis Assistance Ministry and was responsible for getting donations, getting stuff into the warehouse and distributing it to those folks that were referred to us. This is Clark Pennell, a longtime Charlotte resident who was summoned to Mecklenburg Superior Courtroom 3301 on October 23, 2000. Actually, it was the second time because I had received a summons earlier in the year and I had already planned a family vacation. So they were at that time kind enough to defer me to a later time. And I didn't really pay any attention to the date that I got at a later time, but we had gone to the beach with some friends and we came back and somebody said something about the Caruth trial starts tomorrow. And I said a few words because I realized that that's when I had gotten deferred to. Jury selection continued for 17 days. Caudill laid the stakes bare, asking each potential juror if they believed in the death penalty. The law allows the prosecution to ask the jury if they would consider both punishments, uh, life and the death penalty. And uh, if they say, under no circumstances would I consider one or the other, then can make a challenge to the judge. The judge may or may not accept the challenge and excuse the juror. Ultimately, the jury of Carruth's peers was made up of seven men and five women, nine whites and three African Americans, but no black men. The most unexpected selection was Herb Brown, a lawyer who'd practiced for 37 years in Charlotte and had even stood across a courtroom from Caudill. I know Gentry Caudill very well, knew him very well, tried a lot of cases against him. And uh, it is uncommon because both sides would feel like the attorney would be the most dictatorial person on that jury and would rob those other jurors of their choice to make their own decisions. I'm so glad that whenever we sat down, some other fella immediately announced that he wanted to be the the foreman. I said, oh, God, that's great. (laughs) Judge Lamb told the jurors to avoid any media coverage of the case. Carruth's defense, which would ultimately cost taxpayers more than $200,000, was about to begin. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic Gymnastics, Cain Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, everybody? This is Stephen A. Smith. When I'm not at my day job, first tape, you can find me in my studio hosting the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at the very least as I bring you all new episodes that feature the biggest headlines in the world of sports, pop culture, business, and politics. You'll hear my unfiltered opinions on those nauseating cowboy fans, the chaos in Washington, D.C., and trending topics on social media, as well as my straight-shooter interviews with top celebrities and game changers. And I occasionally give out love advice. Yes, it's true. If you want to know my true feelings about something, I'll give it to you straight. So, listen to the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. I'm Hannah Storm, and my podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, digs deep into the history of professional basketball, along with my own as one of the first female sportscasters. Now let's get you up to speed on what else happened around the NBA today. We talked to all sorts of people I interacted with, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley, and recap iconic moments. Yes, he's got it. Here he comes. 
Ray rocked the baby to sleep and slammed up. As well as some of the wild stories behind the scenes. We were like, what? What are we in for? The scoreboard crashes before we even tip a game off. Today, the NBA is a global sports and entertainment giant. Players are multimillionaires and cultural icons. Iguodala to Curry, back to Iguodala, up for the layup. Oh, blocked by James. LeBron James. And these stories are about how we got here, both on and off the court. And what's next? Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storr on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The most infamous trial in Charlotte history began with a voice from the grave, played during the opening moments of the state's opening argument. Where's he at? He was in the car in front of me and he slowed down and somebody pulled up beside me and did this. And then where'd he go? He just left. Okay. All right, what's his name? Ray Carruth. He played good Football hero Ray Carruth drove away and left Sharik Adams and his own son for dead. Caudill stood six foot two with a granite jaw. After 28 years as a prosecutor, he knew compelling evidence when he heard it. She was fighting to hold on to life long enough to tell somebody what had happened and who had done it and to try to save her baby. She was the strongest witness for herself to her own murder. What part of the body been shot at? I don't know. And with Sharika's 911 call, he knew jurors like Pennell would react when they heard it. It was very uh, emotional for all of us that were there. And some of the ladies, I think, were actually crying a little bit when they heard it, and maybe some of us men, too. You know what kind of car he drove? It was gray. Yeah. It was in a black expedition. Black expedition? I mean, white expedition. White expedition. It was also the first time Sharika's mother, Sandra, heard the full 12-minute recording. I had not heard the actual call, no, before court. And um, I still remember that hit me like a ton of bricks. Um, to, to hear the pain in her voice, but still to sense that determination that through the pain and through whatever I have to go through, I've got to get to safety for my son. She even thought to be blowing the horn. And I remember on the 911 call, the operator says, what is that noise? And she's like, it's me. I'm blowing the horn. I'm trying to get some attention. What's that horn blowing? Me trying to get attention. That was so her. So, you know, it was a hard thing to hear. But yet through all that, you could, yeah, you, you see that personality. That perseverance that just coming through, that determination coming through. Even Rudolph knew how powerful the moment was. I don't have any doubt that that was the most important evidence. And I have no doubt that whatever Sharika said was her honest impression at the time. You know, I don't think she was lying about that. I don't, you know, I don't think she was making something up. And Ray admits, yeah, I was in front of her and I took off. Now, the whole thing about, you know, slowing or stopping, my recollection is there was some leading going into that. I don't remember if it was the 911 operator who first suggested that he stop, but I don't think she was the one who first said he stopped. And again, I, I could be wrong about this because it's a long time ago. Or your boyfriend, the one you said that was with you. Where's he, he was at? in the car in front of me and he slowed down and somebody pulled up beside me and did this. Almost immediately, the two lead attorneys showed their differing styles. Rudolph's delivery was more flamboyant, and he was more prone to pushing buttons. Turn from someone who had never been in trouble a day in his life, who had never been violent towards anyone, who had never done anything to Sharika, to turn from that into a contract killer overnight? There's no motive there. Rudolph doesn't miss a chance to say what he thinks. He's very sharp. He's sharp-tongued. He can be, and he is very quick. That's what makes him a good trial attorney. 
Here's Jim Gronquist, who represented co-defendant Stanley Abraham at the time and did commentary for Court TV's coverage of the trial. Gentry is very methodical. He doesn't get rattled easily. Gentry's also a very sharp guy, and he knows what he's doing, and he'd been doing death penalty cases for a good while. Like Caudill, Rudolph also began his opening argument with what he said were someone else's words. The real legal strategy was that Watkins had made a statement to a prison guard. He flipped to a blank page on a large white easel and wrote out a statement allegedly made by Watkins. He had just given us money. None of this would have happened. If Ray had just paid us the money, none of this would have happened. Now, put that statement in context with what I've told you about the lead up to this. That statement formed the cornerstone of a defense asserting Sharika had been shot as retribution for Carruth backing out of a major drug deal. In Rudolph's eyes, this was no planned hit. The only way you can interpret that statement is consistent with Ray's story. Because if he's a hitman, what does that mean if he had just paid me the money, none of this would have happened? It doesn't mean anything, it's gibberish. Watkins told me that the quote was fabricated. Either way, Rudolph continued throwing verbal darts at Watkins, preemptively impugning the character of the man everyone thought would be the state's key witness. Until suddenly, a new witness came forward. Michael Kennedy. They were going to use Van Brett Watkins, and I'm just sitting here thinking, you're going to use the guy who actually fired the shots as your star witness? This is attorney James Exum, who represented Kennedy at the time. But that ain't going to work out so good for you, whereas I've got this guy. He's, yeah, he's got some, a little drug history, but this isn't a drug case. And he's got all of the facts of that night. And from the time that I met him, he wanted to do the right thing. So, for example, before there was any legal representation, he gave a fairly full and pretty damaging to himself statement, confession, whatever you want to call it. I said to him, okay, based on what you've told the police, you've told them enough to end up on death row. And now we need to take that and turn it into a positive. Charged with first-degree murder and facing the same potential death penalty as Carruth, Kennedy's offer was nearly unheard of. We knew we didn't have a case that we could successfully go to trial on. We wanted to do the right thing, which sometimes legally is challenging. We had to, one, know that Michael was going to testify and he was going to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. And if he did that, I had confidence that Gentry and the other prosecutors involved in the case would do right by him when it was all said and done. But it is true, there was no agreement. It was one heck of a risk. Exum talked about risk in more ways than one. In another piece of information that has never before been reported, the lawyer told me that once Kennedy agreed to testify against Carruth, his family found itself in the crossfire. I knew there were a number of threats, calls to his mom and I think his sister as well. If Michael said certain things and if Michael didn't kind of, through me, I guess, tone down what he was saying against Ray because it was looked upon as he was, quote unquote, snitching. Well, one person snitching is another person's telling the truth. Kennedy's past meant he had questionable credibility. But on the witness stand, he spoke convincingly. Then he stopped his car. She stopped behind his. I stopped behind her. He said that Carruth told him teammates were mocking him for getting Sharika pregnant and that Carruth hired Watkins to shoot her. So I pulled up beside her car and he started shooting her car. After uh, Watkins fired those shots, what, if anything, were you able to hear? I heard her screaming. Are you referring to Sharika? Yes, sir. Rudolph tried to trip up Kennedy in his cross-examination. Ray's probably saying in his head that there was a, a bad plan also. No, actually, he's saying he's innocent. He's saying in his head that he didn't do this, Mr. Kennedy, and that you're a liar. That's what he's saying. My impression is that I didn't think I really undermined his credibility in a really significant way. I think there were certain things I impeached him about. I think probably his drug dealing. But uh, I don't remember feeling like, boy, I got him. Uh, So I, I think he was a... I think 
in truth, he was an effective witness. It doesn't mean he wasn't lying. Uh, it just means he was a good liar. Yeah. What Ray says is he cannot understand why Kennedy didn't just tell the truth. The only sense he makes out of it is that here's Kennedy driving the car. <laughs> Watkins shoots this woman. He's driving the car. It's not going to do him any good to roll on Watkins. So the only person who he can provide evidence about is Ray. But Ray said that he always expected Watkins to lie. But he was really surprised that Kennedy lied. Kennedy declined to participate in this project. I asked Kennedy's lawyer for a response to that assertion. Uh, none of that was made up. And I don't think it was an accident that Ray stops in front of Sharika and then the car filled with the people that he had put together came up and shot her. I don't think there's any fantasy in that. I think it's very, very sad. On the stand, other witnesses for the prosecution were equally unsparing. The state called Michelle Wright, the mother of Carruth's other son, Ray Jr. She told the court that once, when she planned to bring the child to visit his father in Charlotte, Carruth told her, quote, don't be surprised if you get in a car accident. In a recent phone interview, Wright said she and Carruth are now on amicable terms and that he has apologized for treating her and their son poorly. But she reaffirmed that even if Carruth had been joking about the car accident, everything she said in court was true. The state called three dozen witnesses in the trial, including that FBI agent, Mark Post, and Post brought visuals. I mentioned we have a special effects unit, and with him in the trunk, they can recreate that based upon the make and model of the vehicle. They got the dimensions of the trunk. I described to them what was in the trunk, Ray Carruth, urine bottles, and then the uh, candy wrappers. Rudolph took a combative approach to his cross-examination. His demeanor, the way he talked, the way he asked questions, very almost demeaning and trying to play a game for the jury and trying to make it look as if uh, we had done something wrong when all we did was do what we were supposed to do and arrest Ray Carruth. Caudill also called Amber Turner, the woman out in Colorado who had become pregnant with Carruth's child soon after he was drafted by Carolina. She told the jury that Carruth pressured her to abort the pregnancy, which she did. She testified that he told her, quote, Don't make me send somebody out there to kill you. You know I would do it. You can't have this baby. Caudill also introduced Sharika's notes from her hospital bed, including the one that read, He was driving in front of me and stopped in the road, and a car pulled up beside me and he blocked the front. After 11 days, the state rested its case. Prosecutors were convinced they'd done their jobs, and best of all, they hadn't had to call Watkins. Kennedy had been an imperfect witness to the crime, but for Caudill, he was good enough. As the case began, Michael Kennedy's lawyer came to me and said he was willing to testify against Ray Carruth without a plea agreement because he wanted the truth to come out. And uh, we decided we would, in fact, use him uh, which made the necessity of putting Watkins on the stand disappear, and we decided clearly not to use him. Still, Watkins' plea bargain down to second-degree murder would be honored, even though he didn't testify for the state. Well, he had done what he had agreed to do. That is, he stood willing to testify. He cooperated with us. He was holding up his share of the bargain, so uh, we were going to do so also. But now, it was Rudolph's turn. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, everybody? This is Stephen A. Smith. When I'm not at my day job, first tape, you can find me in my studio hosting the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast. 
Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, at the very least, as I bring you all new episodes that feature the biggest headlines in the world of sports, pop culture, business, and politics. You'll hear my unfiltered opinions on those nauseating cowboy fans, the chaos in Washington, D.C., and trending topics on social media, as well as my straight-shooter interviews with top celebrities and game changers. And I occasionally give out love advice. Yes, it's true. If you want to know my true feelings about something, I'll give it to you straight. So listen to the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. I'm Hannah Storm, and my podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, digs deep into the history of professional basketball, along with my own as one of the first female sportscasters. Now let's get you up to speed on what else happened around the NBA today. We talked to all sorts of people I interacted with, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley, and recap iconic moments. Yes, he's got it. Here he comes. Ray rocked the baby to sleep and slammed dunk. As well as some of the wild stories behind the scenes. We were like, what? What are we in for? The scoreboard crashes before we even tip a game off. Today, the NBA is a global sports and entertainment giant. Players are multimillionaires and cultural icons. Iguodala to Curry, back to Iguodala, up for the layup. Oh, blocked by James. LeBron James. And these stories are about how we got here, both on and off the court. And what's next? Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storr on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The defense needed to cast reasonable doubt on Caudill's case. And Rudolph's preference had long been to not call his clients to testify in their own defense. Besides, at the time, the defense said Carruth wasn't at the scene of the crime, so he had nothing to say about the shooting. My approach generally is trials are about whether there's reasonable doubt or not, whether the state makes its case beyond a reasonable doubt. Once you put on evidence, that paradigm shifts a little bit, because now the jury is just sort of saying, okay, do I believe Ray Carruth? It becomes just that. Uh, and then, of course, you had things like he's found in the trunk of a car you know, with $5,000 and a water bottle. Um, you know, I mean, there were some ugly facts that he would have been cross-examined about mercilessly. The defense ultimately called 40 witnesses of its own, from Panthers teammates to Carruth's bail bondsman to one of his high school football coaches, but not the head coach. I followed it every day on court TV, to be honest with you. And then I got called by his lawyer, who was, I guess, a very significant lawyer, one of the best around. His secretary called me about five times. Hmm. Uh, I was out mowing the lawn. My wife said, hey, you got to answer this. This is Dave Hoskins, Carruth's head coach at Sacramento's Valley High School. He's the man who called Carruth up to the varsity in 1989. They wanted me to come and testify for Ray. I said, I heard the 911 call. I watch this every day. And that's not the Ray Carruth I knew. And I said, no. The defense was able to convince one of the Valley High assistant coaches to be a character witness. But Rudolph's gutsiest move was calling the man Caudill had decided to leave on the sidelines, Van Brett Watkins. We talked to three different juror members, and um, all three of them remember Watkins' testimony. I'll bet they do. I do, too. <laughs> the defense needed the jury to hear what Watkins allegedly told that jailer, a woman named Shirley Riddle. If they could show Watkins acted alone, Carruth would be off the hook. And Rudolph had been hammering on this quote since his opening statement. He had just given us money. None of this would have happened. So we had to get that evidence. If Shirley Riddle comes in and says, that's what Watkins told me. It's hearsay. However, if it comes in to contradict his testimony, it's coming in for impeachment purposes. Now, that's a distinction that makes no sense to any layperson, but it's the law. So I was fully prepared to cross-examine Watkins about this statement to Riddle, 
have him deny it, and then call Riddle to impeach him. Well, Gentry Cordell decided not to call Watkins. So now what do I do? The only way I can have Riddle testify is if I put Van Brett Watkins on the stand, I ask him the question, didn't you tell this to Shirley Riddle? And either way, if he says, yes, I said it, I don't need Shirley Riddle anymore. If he denies it, now I have Shirley Riddle to testify, no, he did say that. And let me just say, that's a gutsy move. You know, I mean, I'm putting on the hitman just to get that one piece of evidence, but I needed it. What Rudolph got was a verbal sparring match that lasted two days, on court TV, on the national news, and in front of the world. Today, the exchanges are immortalized on YouTube. Well, you're a lot bigger than he is, right? He's a lot more dangerous than I am, though. Yeah, because he has a really violent background compared to yours. Is that, no, is that it, took, sir? He took murder as his first charge. I see. We understand that's your story to save your life, sir. Save my life? My life is still gone. Are you going to be strapped to a gurney, sir? Either way. Are you going to be strapped to a gurney? Either way. Are you going to be strapped to a gurney? I don't know. In his testimony, Watkins described the night of the shooting in detail. He admitted to being a longtime felon. Even his language caught some jurors off guard. Being present in court for several weeks, Van Brett Watkins was a scary subject. Here's jury member Herb Brown again. He was a huge guy physically, like he was an offensive tackle for an NFL team. And uh, he, he seemed to be where he didn't have any soul to him, any conscience about what was right and wrong. He was apparently paid to do something, and he carried it out. Whether you believed him or not, Watkins' testimony made compelling theater. During one of the hitman's days on the stand, about 20 Panthers players gathered in front of a TV in their locker room after practice. Several of Carruth's former teammates had testified on his behalf, but Watkins and Kennedy's testimonies had planted a seed of doubt in the mind of some players. Even a trial, you, you're still hoping and praying that, man, okay, it's not him. He didn't have nothing to do with it. Mike Minner is a former teammate of Carruth's. And when you have people who was involved telling the whole thing, that's when it blows you away is when somebody who was actually there. First-hand knowledge, man. So now you, you, you look and you say, okay, well, it had to be. With Watkins on the stand, the courtroom was tense, and Judge Lamb could sense it. Lamb felt the leg shackles Watkins wore in court weren't enough security. Much to Caudill's chagrin. Well, Judge Lamb had a deputy standing between Watkins and Judge Lamb. I mean, directly between them, standing up there in the witness stand, almost in his lap, glaring at Watkins. I can understand that. He was a, a, a scary-looking fellow, but um, I mean that certainly added to the picture, if you will, that the defense wanted to paint. Rudolph remembers the scene, too. Oh, yeah, no, I, I noticed the deputies sort of uh, came out of the sides there. The jurors moved a few feet to the left. The judge had a deputy behind him. Uh, no, I, I saw all that. The judge was very concerned he was going to go over the witness chair and uh, come at me. Rudolph intended to use that to his advantage. If he could show Watkins as an unstable felon prone to rage and violence... He could cement reasonable doubt about Carruth having planned Sharika's killing. You get there, he must have been pretty angry at you for not bringing the gun, wasn't he? He's ordering everybody around. Watkins was extremely bizarre. He's the kind of guy that you don't know what's going to come out of his mouth. James Exum, Kennedy's lawyer, was there in the courtroom as the drama unfolded. That is the worst witness you can ever have for the prosecution or the defense. You kind of want to know what they're going to say and kind of ask questions to bring in what you want and limit what you don't. Impossible with Watkins. Absolutely impossible. 
Rudolph heckled Watkins about showing up to Caruth's house, allegedly to commit a murder without a weapon on him. Well, heck, I mean, you show up the hitman without the gun? And he made sure I did another one. Excuse me, sir, I'm still asking a question. And this vicious criminal who's never had as much as a parking ticket in his life that commits a murder on his first time out for crime? What was he going to escalate to? With the tension level rising, Rudolph pressed harder. He must have been mighty angry at you to show up at his house for this hit without the gun, wasn't he? Wasn't he. Excuse me? Wasn't he. I just answered you. What's your answer, yes or no? Wasn't he. Yeah. And in a moment that everyone I interviewed remembers to this day, Rudolph got what he wanted. And so did he say, well, you go on back and you go get that gun when... I didn't need a gun, okay? For me to kill somebody, I don't need a gun. I'm 286 pounds. I would rip you like a rag doll. He's like, a, I could rip you apart like a rag doll. That's what I remember about that. And he's just said, I'll tear you up like a rag doll. You go back in that jury room and you look at each other and you think, oh my God, did that just happen? I'm 286 pounds and I could rip you limb from limb like a little rag doll. I won't ever forget those words. If you looked at the jury at that point, they were not leaning forward. They were back like on their heels like this guy, get him out of here before he does something really bad. This is Gronquist the lawyer and court TV commentator. Probably the most unhappy guy in that courtroom was Gentry because they were afraid they were going to lose the case. Watkins ranted for another two minutes before Rudolph ended his questioning altogether. I told him not to do it. For six months, I avoided him. He forced me to do it. He threatened me and the ones I loved. He's representing a person who had his baby's mama and baby contracted out to kill. I'm done, Your Honor. You're right about that. Eighteen years later, Watkins remains proud of his testimony. In our jailhouse interview, he reflected on his decision to cooperate with authorities and on Sharika's killing. The best thing I did in my life after the worst thing. And if I had to do it all again, I would do it immediately. Rudolph, too, seems proud of the exchange. I was very glad the marshals were between me and him. <laughs> you know, I, I didn't expect that. That's, that's one of those, you know, once-in-a-lifetime moments where uh, somebody says something like that, and it's, uh, wow. And I think right after that, I said, I have no further questions. In some ways, him going nuts on the witness stand was just a bonus. It was a very nice bonus. But it was just a bonus. That wasn't the reason I called him. Rudolph did indeed call Riddle to the stand, and she recounted her story. On January 16, 2001, 14 months after Sharika Adams was shot, the lawyers made their closing arguments. Caudill talked about Sharika's 911 call. Hey, are you controlling your bleeding? Caudill said, quote, Ray Carruth can turn on the charm. People are drawn to him. It's obvious. But there's another side to him. Sharika Adams saw it too late. Ma'am, can you blow your horn some more so the officers can find you? They got me. Somebody's out with you? Medic there? They got me. They got me. Okay, they're going to take care of you, okay? Rudolph said the state's case made no sense and asked the jury if it seemed likely that a man with no criminal record and an NFL career would make his first crime a murder for hire. It took 20 hours of deliberation over the next four days for the jury to reach a verdict. On January 19, 2001, Pennell stood in front of the judge holding four verdict sheets. Carruth's very life hung in the balance. We, the jury, returned the unanimous verdict as follows that the defendant, Ray Lamar Carruth, I'm Scott Fowler, and this podcast is produced by Jeff Siner and Rachel Wise and Davin Coburn at McClatchy Studios. Find lots more about this case at charlotteobserver.com slash Caruth. And for just $30, subscribe now to a full year of the Observer's award-winning sports coverage at charlotteobserver.com slash sportspass. 
in chapter 6, The Miracle Boy. We counted every step, one, two, three, to see what kind of number he could get to. Sometimes I'll tell him how strong he is. You've got that athletic ability like your dad. What do you call your grandmother? Cuba. G-Mom? Yeah. yeah. Look at these muscles on this oh, kid. I, know. I mean, he's got crazy, totally. crazy big muscles. Yeah. But the brain's telling those muscles to overwork. Yeah. Nice job, buddy. Usually he just saves the excitement for the end when he gets it. Today he's so excited you're here. He's just going to do that the whole time. <laughs> If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, everybody? This is Stephen A. Smith, host of the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at the very least as I bring you all new episodes that feature the biggest headlines in the world of sports, pop culture, business, and I answer your phone calls and respond to your tweets. You'll hear my unfiltered opinions and straight-shooter interviews with top celebrities and game changers. All that and more. So listen to the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. I'm Hannah Storm, and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball, from growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.